we jam together and we make just sounds and stuff together. And I think what happens during those periods is like you, you collectively go together somewhere. And as I think it's a hard experience to explain to people that haven't experienced it, but it's beautiful. It's like you are traveling together and then you're like connected and nothing exists. The individual doesn't exist in that moment. Welcome to Coming Home, a podcast expanding our sense of home and community through conversations about collective living. We are your hosts, George and Travis. In this episode, we talk with Raj about housing security, his experience with starting collectives and teardown homes, particularly around making roots in places that are constantly undergoing change how to create ceremony and rites of passage in these shared living environments, especially learning to practice how to reconcile with those who came before us. While this conversation is focused on collective housing and collective living in Vancouver, people from a wide variety of different experiences will be able to relate. Raj is an amazing clown. He's a psychedelic flight attendant. He's an educational assistant working with kids on the spectrum. He's done work with harm reduction at festivals. He's an amazing storyteller. And some bigger questions emerged from this conversation that I was really happy to bring voice to. Super excited for this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Welcome, Raj. Thank you for joining us. I was thinking maybe we could just bring in the audience and tell the story of like how, how we met Raj originally and kind of go from there because that's kind of you know how we've arrived here i guess there was a party me and you showed up my roommate at the time was performing an art piece at it um, later in the evening and then there was also like a gallery set up throughout this house there's a few events and i think that one was the third show we did you're always regulars to all our shows which is always nice yeah because we're in the neighborhood we're like six blocks away you were definitely one of the first people I thought of when we were creating this podcast and like thinking of people who we wanted to talk to, definitely because of the Wheel of Time Gallery house and that ex- that sort of experience, um, because both Travis and I got to witness that and participate at the events that you put on there. That whole journey in house has evolved into a, a whole other series of things that are progressing along and that you're still exploring. Every time I talk to you, I feel like, uh, something different comes up and, and it's something new and exciting and I feel like I learn so much every time I yeah, talk to you. Thank you so. for, for saying that. Um, I think so much of that house and the intention for me uh, it was like to meet people and I think that the fact that we're sitting here together and we met at that house was a success in a, in a way. I was new to the city and I think by the time I was living in that house you know, I've only been here for about maybe four years and so it was really important to find like-minded people 
to make stuff with or share stuff with and to conspire and to to see uh, what we can do. And it was so much of that. That was always, you know, original reasoning why I got into living in collective housing. It was easier just to be part of creating the houses than to find an already established uh, house or, you know, even just uh, like a, you know, like a roommate or situation or something. Yeah. When you say like that house, Travis and I know that house. How would you describe that house? Well, now that house is um, gone kaboom because it's been demolished and all the houses on that block. Where is this house? It's on Renfrew Street. It was on Renfrew Street right by the Skytrain between Broadway and uh, Grandview. And they demolish those houses now and they're building uh, apartments, rental apartments. So uh, I felt pretty good about what they were making there. I I went to all the meetings when they were demolishing because I got really curious of like the whole process and I needed to know how much time I had there. You know, I thought we were only there for one year and then, you know, it evolved to another year and then it was ended up being like three years. And so I was really going to all the meetings and figuring out how much time I had there because it was all about, we were trying to make art shows and do all sorts of stuff there. And then when I was going to the meetings, the city council approved, I think it was like a 10 to zero vote, which, you know, the city council doesn't usually vote like that strong on things. They were like approved the demolition of all the houses to build these apartments. And I think why they approved it was because they were building rental apartments and there's going to be low income, moderate income housing available and it was going to increase rental stock. But one thing I, I realized that they didn't put into consideration, and I think it was because of their lack of living in these kind of houses, is, yeah, there's about 10 houses on the block, and each house wasn't a single family that living in them, and they kind of made it out to seem that each house was just housing for, like, one family. And so that was like, they're like, okay, we're losing 10, 10 homes, which is, you know, 10, you know, 10 families. But then most of the houses had some sort of collective living whether informal or, you know, structured stuff. And so there's way more people involved in those housing situations than they realized. And yeah, that was something I found kind of interesting because they made it seem like only 10 units were getting demolished. Right. It was more like if there's like six bedrooms in, or five bedrooms in these houses, you know, times that by 10, that's like 50, 60 people, individuals that have their own kind of lives and stuff. How many people would you guess lived in those houses? You know, there's one family that that was our neighbor, but then he was also renting out spaces in the the basement. So there was even his house, but he was the last owner. So he was holding out for the end because he was making a lot of money by selling that house to the developers. You know, the the houses were worth like three, four million dollars and there were just these, you know, rundown homes. Yeah, that's super interesting. Just that context of, um, yeah, the numbers and the way that can be not fully representative like who's living there i think that's one side of it is the numbers piece and just the housing of collectives of people occupying these like single family homes that are meant for blood related families that are now occupied by non-related adults or whoever and i think that's a really interesting piece and also i think what you did as a collective as like a group of people like you guys weren't just a group of strangers off craigslist yeah yeah and you started this house with a kind of intention. Yeah. How did that begin? Yeah. So we, we lived in another house before, which, so our, the house that we, that got demolished, we 
you know, had this gallery called the Wheel of Time. And then it was, the name of the actual house was, was called Kid's Castle. And the house that we all came from was Grandma's Palace. And I always find naming of houses kind of interesting because it's usually just named after whatever's there. And so our first house that we all moved into, the intention of that house was, there's a lot of us that finished clown school. We got taught from a local clown teacher who has taught clown for like 40 years here, named David McMurray-Smith, who's been really um, pivotal to so much art in the city. And his work was and classes were so amazing that after we finished, for me and other people, we wanted to continue doing the work. So we needed space in, and we all needed places to live. So that was a house that was like a clown house where we could perform and create and evolve. Though when we started that house, there was a lot of us, but eventually we found a house that was a five-bedroom massive house or six bedroom and we needed to fulfill another room and then we kind of did a craigslist ad for one of the last remaining rooms and we got some musicians in there some international brazilians and then it kind of evolved into like a art and music house with the clowning elements so we lived there for about yeah, two years and we got renovated from that place we did not want to leave it was really a nice and beautiful house but when we got told we had to leave all of us wanted to continue living together, which is always a nice sign. Also, you know, kind of cool. Now we're like collectively looking for a house. And it was really challenging, actually, to find a house at that time. I think it was 2000, end of 2017, and there wasn't too much on the market. We found three houses, and one of them was this teardown house. And I was super excited for it. I think I was excited for it because we knew that it was going to be a teardown from the beginning. The worst is when you live in a house and then all of a sudden you're told to leave. So knowing that this place is going to come to an end kind of was just inspiration of wanting to then use that energy of something that's going to you know come to an end. Especially someone who likes to make art and performance, you know, having the house just be uh, like a stage, you can do anything to the house. We were told, do whatever. You're not going to lose your damage deposit. And that was like my eyes just, uh, you know, got so big. I was so inspired by that. And you know, I went to Burning Man one year, and I was always so inspired by that. And it was more about how can I bring some of those principles back into my own life. And so the house just represented this temporary art project. And this whole collective idea started called Temporary Frames, where the intention was just to make art that's temporary. Uh, and then you're just putting frames around it. You know, the house was just this physical frame. And it became a friend of mine, you know, in a way, which is weird. What became a friend of yours? The the house. <laughs> and I just, uh, I, I got really fascinated by uh, objects and uh, material uh, and just realizing that, I mean, they're part of our lives. You know, I'm holding this cup and it's like, you know, these, all these things have stories and, you know, just seeing like what stories that they have to tell, even like, like a room or a house, like what story does the house want to say? Like, what has the house experience and so a lot of the work i like to do just kind of is from that angle just changing the perspective of how we see things because you know it's so easy to look through the perspective of i that's what we are do all the time so that's to change the lens for a bit would that come like more tea oh yes please <laughs> and look at this beautiful tea um teapot you know that's just 
to me, I just see this character and I could spend a lot of time just with that, with that uh, teapot. (laughs) We are. Yeah. (laughs) I think when I moved into these houses, I always, it's always nice when you're in the house and it's empty and then you have the, the, the house especially if it's been lived in um and i and the, our first house that we lived in grandma's palace it was named named that because the grandma lived there for um for like 40 years she re, she raised her family and they all moved out and she continued to live there and we found out that she died and they didn't really tell us the full story but it was under the impression that she died there and then when we moved in we were the first renters to move in and it you know she definitely was there you know like you could you could get a sense of her um like her her cooking grease was like fully there and she was kind of paranoid as well too because she had a safe room i mean there was like a room in her uh, in the master bedroom where it was, which was like a closet and she could go in there and she could lock that door and there's like a phone in there and so we just wanted to to just respect her and so we named the house after her and then to, to respect her, sorry. To respect okay, her. her. Almost her disrespect. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it felt like she was not too keen with us being there at first because uh, our water pipes blew, uh, the back fence blew down. We had a flood. So much stuff was happening at the beginning of that house. There was a point where we really just wanted to f- figure out her story just through our own like imagination. And eventually it felt like you know she gave us permission because all the best stuff that was happening in the house stopped. Hmm. And then when we moved into the new place, again, a, a family lived there, and they had a, a bunch of kids, and there was, when we moved in, it was just a disaster. Like, it seemed like the kids had just Crayola'd all over the, uh, all over the house, and it was, um, I think they were under the pressure that the house was going to get demolished, like, right away. And so they didn't realize renters were going to move in. So when we moved in, it was like the kids were already having an art party. They were just going crazy. So that was kind of where that name came from. The kids were going wild, and so we're just going to continue with that energy. Perfect for a clown house or a group of clowns. <laughs> well, yeah, when we moved into that house, there was less clowns. Then it just became all a collection of just various people that were involved in some art form. Right. Could you mention again, in uh, Grandma's Palace, the practices you took to like connect with that energy there? I think you mentioned something related to improv or the clowning aspect of mm. the folks living there. Yeah, I think so much of the clown work is this idea of embodiment where you become the the thing. So instead of consciously thinking of, oh, I'm going to become this person or I'm going to act, you are just trying to allow the energy of the thing to come through you. Then you're just almost a vessel. So yeah, I think it was through that process of bringing in the grandma it was just asking to have the grandma be there and i think we had an evening of it where we were starting to make performance and uh, one of our housemates became the grandma and then the rest of us were the kids and then we had a lot of fun with uh, making some grandma's inspired performance i think it's fascinating there's the dynamic of you know as renters you're occupying this person's home and then you as renters you know reconciling catastrophes that were happening when you were moving in and kind of you know the you could feel maybe her spirit was not pleased that (laughs) that these new people were living there i can't help but think of the displacement of the indigenous peoples on this land and how that 
same story is unfolding, but at a larger scale, and the practices of reconciling with that, that maybe your house went through in some way of, you know, and kind of a, a through-year lens of clowning and, and embodiment practices. Yeah, I don't think we have ways to acknowledge when things change. I've moved in and lived in many places, and, you know, just even having, like, ceremonies or having some sort of event just to honor your time somewhere, just clearing up the space, like the psychic space that, that gets created there. And also when you go to a new place, you know, the psychic space that was there and that needs to get cleared out. And I, you know, I grew up in a, in a Sikh uh, culture. And so I, growing up, if there's any big event that's changing your life, that you have these day-long, three-day-long, or even seven-day-long uh, ceremonies that are like nonstop, Say if you bought a house, you're going to have a three-day, 72-hour ceremony. And I think just having that growing up was always something I valued a lot. Even though I'm not like a practicing Sikh, some of those deeper rituals definitely have stuck with me. When I move into a place, there is that kind of respect of what does this house eventually want to be called? What was here? What are we going to do here? And just kind of honoring that and respecting that. And yeah, and I think it's just healthy. psychologically really healthy to do that kind of stuff but yeah back to your question of like these bigger cities and neighborhoods that are changing if i go back to where uh, the renfrew house it's going to be completely different in a couple of years that whole neighborhood's going to be completely different and it's you know what's the memory that's going to be there though I, I made a virtual tour that's permanently going to be on on a website right now that was my one way of you know making this temporary project permanent you know as long as we have internet I love that. I think there's the question of what remains. What is the legacy of these places? To me, that's the relationships, right? The relationship with the place between the people, the experiences Mm. that were shared there. That's what lives on. And I think that kind of goes, goes into what Travis and I have been working on. Travis and I have been talking about collective housing. You know, the Vancouver scene is sort of, it's a collective housing scene. There's the Vancouver Collective Houses Network with like 16 plus thousand people on it, and it's growing steadily. Mm-hmm. And it's been around for over a decade. So there's definitely a, a growing movement of collective houses in the Vancouver region, as well as like all over the world. In most cities that I've heard of, there seems to be some sort of collective or communal or community housing scene. There's lots of different names for it. There's all these different manifestations physically and physical expressions of this housing type, and there's all these different names for it. But there seems to be a common undercurrent of community, collectivity, cooperation, like something that's shared. And to me, that's culture, right? There's actually a a culture that is being created by these physical spaces being occupied in this sort of like shared way. I think that's not a new culture. As you said, you, you were sort of primed for it in some ways, or even looking for it from your experiences growing up in Sikh culture. When I think back to my upbringing, my family environment, those are like cultural values that get expressed in many different ways. And we sort of are inspired to seek those out wherever we go. For some of us, it's clowning, or for some of us, it's food. I think that's really common. I'm really interested in the, the culture that's being created around collectives and how, how we can like be more intentional and aware that we're participating in that in some way and especially around like the acknowledgement and reconciliation piece we're both being displaced as renters moving 
being pushed from one house to another through renovations, through housing and affordability, through forces of capitalism and all this. At the same time, we're also displacing others by participating in this larger culture of settler colonialism. How do we reconcile with that? How are we participating in that in a way that is honoring the people who took care of the places that we lived before us? Mm-hmm. Big questions. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't got those answers. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just on a personal level, things can organically evolve when you live with people. And but most of the time it doesn't, you know, I think there needs to be some sort of um, communication of like, what the intentions of, of a house is or things just get left unsaid. And then, you know, eventually uh, things change and people like don't know, you know, they're like, OK, this place isn't for me or whatever. And so I, I found like having like a, a shared art practice with, with people is this one simple way to be on like a same page of, you know, culture making and stuff. For me, this idea of this housing it's such a mess here. And, you know, especially these teardown houses, where I think who isn't like being affected by it. And it was in a way to not continue to live the same story, the narrative that gets happened. It's like you move into a place and you get pushed out. And, you know, that is a really standard narrative that a lot of people experience. And so it's wanting to make a new story around that. So it's like, okay, here's a really shitty situation. Can I experience this shitty situation in a new way? And have more control and ownership of the story instead of being like, all right, I'm going to move in here and I'm going to be told to leave at another time. And so I have no control. I have no control of when I I get to leave, but I do have control of what happens in that period of living there. I think, and then going through that process, the things I got to experience in that place, I probably would not have been able to experience without having a place that was going to get demolished and that whole scenario. So it was, it was kind of taking, you know, this really like a shitty situation and, you know, making something out of it. And so, yeah, in this idea that I had a question of like, you know, what, what, um, when you're pushed into situations, I think if you're like an artist and stuff, sometimes these situations can uh, create interesting culture and experiences and, and art and art forms. There's a limit to that as well. You know, after living in this house, I'm like, okay, I don't want to go experience that again. But I'm living in, I live in a new place. It's also going to be it's a teardown. So I am recognizing that I'm back into the cycle again. And this time I'm less about wanting to make art in this place. Like with the, the structure, it's more, more of an internal process for myself now. You know, I had my fun and I had my, my experience. And now like, what are some roots that I can make here? Even, even now that my place is going to be demolished. Like, yeah, because that's what I'm looking at with the future of yeah how do you make roots in a city that's constantly not encouraging that you know eventually you just get pushed out and then you don't want to live here that happens to a lot of people a lot of people have left this city and it seems like one of the ways to stay is having like bigger collective houses if you were to rent a one-bedroom apartment you know it's really expensive it's simpler just to have a a space in a a house but then you know that doesn't always work for everyone either right you know, how does the whole collective housing situation also evolve too, where it's not just that you're just renting a room, you know, it's like wanting to have more control and ownership because you don't have any security, even with when you're renting a place, you have no security, no matter how nice the landlord is, because if that house has value to be a lot of money, all it takes is them to sell it, you know, and then you're out. So you have no security here. And that is not healthy at all. I know so many artists and awesome people that lived here and they're gone now. And so, you know, all the things that got created, they leave, right? 
I mean, there's always ample opportunity in the city to make new stuff because you're going to be the only people doing it. I experienced that a lot, like how small the, the scenes are here because a scene gets developed and then people get pushed out and then it's gone and then a new scene will come up and then it gets pushed out. Uh, and eventually it's just, uh, you know, there's no long-term support and that's uh, a disservice. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do see pockets of it like that. It does is It is changing because I, 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 I really think and I do believe that people that are in these positions of power uh, do recognize that you don't want to just live in a, a soulless city. That's, uh, yeah, don't want to live in a soulless city. You'd mentioned before that you're about your first exposure to collective housing being in Berlin. Do you want to mm-hmm. speak on that a bit, perhaps? Yeah, I, uh, I moved to Berlin. I was taking urban studies courses at university, and I got inspired by just seeing how the cities that were designed. And coming from Calgary, Alberta, which is just a very car-centric city, I just got so into that idea of just living in a new country and and so, yeah, when I moved there, I just met people like on the street, like people are just really friendly. And so I met some people and they, I lived in their apartment. It was like a six bedroom apartment. The name they have it is called Vigay. It's like a shared housing. And it's a really common thing for people in like bigger cities in Berlin to do. It blew my mind because the people that I lived with were so diverse. They, you know, people were professionals and people made money and stuff. You know, a lot of people were just doing this because that's what they wanted to do. It was less about oh, I'm doing this because I have to do it. They're doing it because they want to do it. I think that really shattered my worldview of uh, what it means to live with people and then how close we all became, how close your friendships and friends can be. And so when I left eventually Germany, and I knew that that was a great way to live, especially it was because it felt just so not, you know, like college kids or anything it was it was like okay the people here are professionals and they and they're choosing to live like this and it was uh it was amazing for me having seen that knew that that's possible and so when i moved to vancouver which was it was more of a common thing we have a house called vancouver special and it's called that because you have a house and then your mortgages are pretty expensive so they're like hey why don't we have a house have a side suite and that was what we go rent out and they'll help your mortgage payments. At a place like Calgary, you don't actually have to do that. Most Canadian cities, a single family home just housed the family. Like you're not renting out any bedrooms in your house. But a place like Vancouver, because real estate is so expensive that they had to create these side suites to help you know, have supplementary income. When they sold these houses and they were designed to have multiple people in them, now you see most Vancouver houses are not actually single-family houses. They are a multi-use, multi-mixed housing. I notice it when I you know, drive by a house or walk by a house, and I'm like, wow, this house is massive. And then you realize, actually, there's more than just one family here. There's, like, multiple people. Having seen how seeing collective living in Germany was really eye-opening. Without seeing that, I probably would not have even thought about living in collectively with people. And I imagine I know so many people probably from back home where I'm from who would never think to live collectively. It probably has such stigma and, and it's weird. All the, the worst things you can think of, of like living with roommates seems like so unappealing. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't experienced a taste of it, yeah, you're going to take you know, some of the worst ideas of it. Yeah. Yeah, the stigma. I feel like that's a real thing, at least from my experience in Northwestern culture, 
but I wonder, yeah, if there's a specific experience <laughs> around the stigma that either of you have witnessed or felt. I think it's more like psychological, like your own, st- you know what I mean? I imagine people might be like, oh, yeah, he, you live in a collective house or you live with roommates. Like, that's weird. Yeah, definitely. I think so much of it becomes internalized. If you have a worldview that you're raised in, that if you're doing good in life is if you like have your own place, right? We value home ownership so much. But I, I see people with home ownership and a lot of the people don't seem like they're living good. I like the fact of having security and all that. But I think that the cost that they have to do to have that I think they're being um, swindled. For me, it's uh, complicated and stuff. Yeah, if you want to own and do all that like ownership, it requires sacrifice. You work more and you need to make more money. But not, not everyone needs to be doing that, you know? Especially if you're adding value to a city. Sometimes people that add value are people that don't make a lot of money. But if those people can't even just afford rent in that city, that's a huge issue. You shouldn't not be able to afford regular, decent uh, rent. That's something that really bothers me a lot. And I have to uh, not be bothered by it because I don't like my mind to be, you know, taken over by, you know, it's like, that's like the idea of how we live, right? It's, uh, you know, things that upset us, then, you know, they, you know, takes over our our mental space. And sometimes it just feels like you can't do anything. And I think that's even a worse state to be in is when you're just drowning in despair. I'd rather be not in that state of mind because it doesn't do anything to help the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's a constant struggle. I think we probably all have experienced that. We probably have different things that put us into those states of mind, you know, like narrowness of thinking of where you feel like you can't do anything. It could be all sorts of topics. But housing has been something that has been a big thing for me just because I've been so involved in it. Yeah. That, yeah, that's so interesting. You know, so many people in the city are not owners. If you have the intentions of setting down roots at some point here, well, you really got to work for it, you know, and make a lot of sacrifices in your time and your lifestyle. Your whole way of being has to fit through these this sort of like narrow passages of what is valued by society, what can, you know, what makes money. Or if you have a certain identity, a certain privilege that has access to those, a certain level of like wealth, you know, that's, it's narrowed to to the few and for the rest of the folks you know they you have to you have to conform or jump through the hoops you know yeah (laughs) work those extra hours take that shift yeah so it's kind of almost evolving co-op housing seems to be the more stable secure version of collective housing or shared ownership but that's the thing, you know, it, it seems like the only way to have security is then to own, you know, it feels like you shouldn't have to do that, right? Not everyone needs to own or wants to own. Yeah. I don't want to have to take care of like a house, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a lot of uh, upkeep and I'd rather that time do another stuff. And so I'm willing to sacrifice all the things that come with not owning something, but I don't want to trade it for not having any security. That's what's the challenge. When you've lived in a rental place for a certain amount of time, you get certain rights, but it's hard to even get your rental rights if you're constantly being moved to a new rental suite or a new rental house because they're all being demolished. How many years is it that you earn rental rights? So if you've been in a place for a year and it's going to be demolished or they're going to 
kick you out. They got to give you like four months notice and all that stuff. And but if say you've been for five years, that's when it gets a little bit more interesting. Or I think it's, I think it's five years or something where you, if they demolish the house and they rebuild it or like they make apartments, that they give you first right to come back in. And so that's that's awesome. Like imagine the the, the apartment. I mean the house that I lived in. If they, you know, they're like, all right, we're, we're demolishing your house and we're going to build apartments. But when we finish the apartments, you get first access to them and you get to have it at the, at the, at a, at the rate that you were paying. That's awesome. You know, I'd be like, all right, you know what? I, I'm down for adding more density to the city uh, and it's by SkyTrain unit. Like, let's, that's awesome. But because, so we had no rights because we, we're already moving into the place and they were already doing the teardown. So they don't want to give you those rights. It's, it's only when they're forced to. But we end up being there for three years because that's how long it took them to actually get all their paperwork done. Hmm. And so now we moved into this new place and then there's like all these other uh, people that live on the block that have been there for like 10, 20 years. And, you know, they get two years of rent plus a $1,000 moving expense. They're going to help them find a new place. And then they get to come back if they want. But we don't get any of that. We, uh, we were at the meeting and we're like, oh, do we get any of this? They're like, no. <laughs> they're like, I was like, oh, that's rushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really So it's kind of like, you know, I think if, that would be a cool thing if they could change that law of just having like credit of being like, oh, how long have you been in the city? You should be able to be like, hey, I've been living in the city for eight years. I haven't had the opportunity to stay in one place. Yeah, you what's know? your contribution to this community? Yeah. These little like nuance, little things, details, I think uh, they're going to affect more people coming up because it's harder to find long-term rental. There's a lot of people say, oh, hey, I'm going to move you know, out of the city. A lot of the jobs and all the stuff is in the city. That's the problem, right? And so the jobs and the work and the opportunities are in the city. So just to like go somewhere outside is, n- is not possible. Did it start with the Kids Castle? The teardown? That was kind of your first project of like intentionally utilizing these these yeah, houses, yeah, these teardown houses. Yeah, so the, the first house, like Grandma's Palace, which it was almost like we were getting, like for me, it was like education. And so it was really nice to be around people that are doing their master's in you know, art and, and music. And we had uh, just such a diverse group of people in that house. Like there was never a core idea of what, this, what we wanted to do together or anything you know everyone's kind of doing their own projects and stuff but there was we were always constantly like uh collaborating so two of our roommates were doing their master's program and then i would help them out if they needed help in any of their projects and learn so much stuff from them then that's what i loved about that house it felt like a, like a college of sorts you know and it was like a free college you know if any of us had to hire any of these individuals it'd be so expensive and so just having access to it like immediately just like right there was what i wanted there was never this grand idea of like, oh, hey, let's do like a, I mean, we tried to do some stuff and we did, we did this, we, we started this thing called Cardboard Day, you know, that was an initiative of, hey, let's get cardboard and make art with it. Then we went to Trout Lake and then we had a parade and then people were like, what are you doing? We're, and we told them it was Cardboard Day. And then, yeah, we're like, it was our first ever Cardboard Day and it was just this beautiful uh, idea. And, and then people got a big kick out of it. But then moving into that kid's castle house, I think it was because the house was the story. For me, it was kind of interesting just to feel what that feels like to be like so single-mindedly obsessed with something when you really are passionate about something. And then that was always the thing. I was like, hey, let's honor this house by let's making art here. 
the, the house that's going to get demolished let's make it beautiful and so when it goes down we could be like hey we did we did all this stuff here because once we were i was done with it i was done with that house i felt like there's nothing more i could have done there and so it felt nice to use all the potential of that place eventually the the garage that we turned into a studio became like a space that we actually worked in and uh and hosted like little uh series and stuff and losing that was kind of challenging because that was actually like a space we used to work in definitely the intentions of that house were for me like really clear it was just like all right this is what i'm doing for my life right now eventually at the end it was okay it's time time to go and we couldn't have like a big show or anything because it, it was like right in the heart of covid we're still in a new heart of it right now. before we started recording you asked me like why i got into collective housing stuff or what why i was interested and then I didn't quite answer because we were doing audio stuff. Um, but I started, and I met George actually through Fireside Collective, which is by Clark Drive. Were you talking about the collective experience being kind of like a college? That's how I felt um, when I first started subletting there. And I was only there for like, I think, three months. But compared to any other living situations I'd been in, including the house I grew up in with my parents and siblings this was the closest experience i'd gotten to just casual skill sharing and uh connecting Mm -hmm. with others through like having access to a garden having access to like a living room space where people are active in and whether just reading books or like offering to like watch films or like go to events and then also sharing meals which was beautiful and like even cooking is something i never really had learned how to do until I was there. And then I was just encouraged and mentored by the different folks in the house about learning to cook big meals for everyone. In the topic of stigma that you asked earlier, I'd say like growing up here, there was like a huge stigma I had associated that I learned from my parents just around like property ownership and like the individualization of, yeah, you're just taking care of your own family. Yeah, that so-called individual go-getter, pull yourself up by your bootstraps for your own kin. But even where I was born in Indonesia, the village mindset of people over there, I knew that that kind of existed, existed in this other world. And then seeing collectives, I was like, oh, it can exist in this like western contemporary sense but it just looks slightly different and it takes Mm -hmm. it takes communication and trust and there can be all these different flavors from people from different ancestries and practices but as long as folks can learn to collaborate in these unique ways then you can create family create these collectives you talked you haven't brought it up yet but the travel agency house that you took over once that was the kids' castle. That was oh, the okay. that was yeah. where the gallery was, and it was going deeper into the house. How much more story there was in that house? The last owners ran a travel agency. You're probably bringing that up because we used to host flights in our cloud studio. That's what we called the studio that we made. You know, we have this idea, and then you realize actually that garage was like a travel agency. You know, I found that kind of. What do you mean by it was a travel agency? that the owners ran a real travel agency 
and they had uh, flight attendant cutouts and uh, travel agency brochures and all the equipment you need to run a you know a travel agency. You know, doing uh, our own type of flights, uh, more internal flights. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. Just because I love stories so much, it was a nice narrative to kind of wrap around. I mean, I can expand more on that if you're I, <laughs> curious. It depends how, how much you're comfortable sharing. Um, yeah, I think, but. I think, and this is, it kind of goes back to this whole uh, skill sharing. You know, I got really interested in, in psychedelics and, and ceremony and, and stuff. Going through ayahuasca ceremonies, I just saw a different way to like undertake like psychedelic use, you know, compared to when I would just experiment, you know, as a, as a youngster, it was just, you take these and you just see what happens. But then when there, it's more intentional and it's more, you know, eyes closed and it's a, it's a really different experience. So that was a really interesting experience for me to go through that. So I got curious when I rediscovered uh, mushrooms of, of taking some of the stuff that I was learning through these ayahuasca ceremonies. Like, can we take some of that approach and use it in our own gatherings with our friends? And then, uh, you know, I took one of my friends on a, on a, took a friend on a, on a trip and we called them flights. And it was such a beautiful experience because it was such a, you know, a personal experience and you're just holding space. Uh, and then we started doing them for other friends. And I think it was just such a ex- cool experience to hold space for uh, friends uh, and people in your life and then trying these things out. And then you learn things from each of these, you know, ceremonies or trips of, of like, oh, yeah, hey, that worked or that didn't really work. But because we're all like friends and we all know each other really deeply and we created this space together, like where else would you be able to do that? You know, you'd either have to do it in this really like kind of sterile or if you didn't know the people, it'd be really kind of, yeah, I think the the feeling would be different. And so, yeah, it was, it was really helpful to find our approach to working with the, these medicines that are just so rooted in some of our clowning practices and uh, in some of the different ways of doing these medicines that house just provided so much and these are just some of the things that were just like born out of it and it wasn't just oh hey let's just start doing this these you know trips it was it like evolved through these years for me anyways of like being around community being around these ceremonies and and then making the space and including you were talking about like taking what you learn from different experiences. I also ran into you doing harm reduction at Base Coast, which I also did. And I'm guessing that would have fed into that experience as well. That was when I was started to get into that type of work and I wanted to see how other people and you know communities and scenes are doing it and and it was really nice, you know, I just to do harm reduction at a, a festival that I, you know, would I would clown in. Usually I like to play and do all sorts of experiences at these kind of festivals. And so then to kind of have a, be like, all right, I want to assist in the, in this place and like actually help out people that might be going through difficult experiences. My favorite time was helping people when they're going through some really, really deep trip or something. There's something about being there for people when they're going through some difficult stuff, just because I've gone through a lot of difficult stuff myself. I don't know anything more than the next person, but it's... I just have some experiences. And so just to be able to be uh, like an anchor while someone is also going down into the, the depths of whatever they're going to. And so you're just kind of, you know, like a can be a life, life raft for that moment because I've definitely needed life rafts at certain points in my experiences. 
and maybe we'll continue to need those, you know? And so how important that sense of community is and, and sense of belonging. I think a lot of times when we're going through really difficult periods is because of the lack of that, you know, just lack of uh, feeling that you belong to something or to be that for another person is, is really special. Life raft or to have yeah. a flight attendant. Yeah, creating frames i think that's been so much of the work that has evolved putting frames on our lives because life is just so chaotic and frames can just help center something and then it kind of gives you oh yeah cool this this moment's gonna end this is not permanent i know i work with kids on the spectrum that's like one of my main jobs they need to know structure because they recognize the chaos. This is what I, this is what I experienced from them is that they recognize the the immense chaos that everything is, and so then being able to have something stable or something that makes clear sense. One example is a lot of the kids I've worked with love trains, and uh, I'm like, why is this so fascinating to them? You know, and it's because it makes sense. The train goes around. There's a track. You know, they need the track to close. You know. There's something just inwardly satisfying about that, I think. And so it's like a frame. That's so interesting. And to me, it makes so much sense talking about how you're a flight attendant and then also how you're sort of tending to these houses as both collectives and structures in their transitions. Hmm. And then you're an educational assistant and you work with youth also doing a a form of harm reduction. It seems like, I don't know, it just seems so fitting. (laughs) Yeah, that was the first, actually, when I lived in that collective house in Berlin, the first person I who he was like a role model. He was like 10 years older than me and he was one of the roommates and he worked with kids that had disabilities and were on the spectrum and stuff. And I remember one of the kids came to the house that I was living in and, uh, and he was like this little, you know, German kid. He was like seven, eight years old, super cute. And I'm like, wow, he was just talking to me. Just, and, I, and my friend was like, oh, hey, he's like, I didn't really realize what, like that he, this is his job. And then I was like, wow, that's like, you know, that's your job. You're just like helping this kid out with like, learning he's like teach him how to count like money they're gonna go like for a walk and stuff and he was like a really creative little kid and i remember that moment it definitely left an impact on me because when i moved to vancouver uh, i wanted to work with kids like him i wanted to work with just challenging autistic kids i mean that's what i was looking for and this shows you just like living in that house this is an is a job that you can do but i didn't know that that was a job growing up and you know that was not like a, a view a world view that i would have learned about or that would have been appropriate for me you know usually in these fields there's not too many males in it and then when i moved here i got a job at a clinic and so this clinic was for some of the most challenging kids in the lower mainland if they can't be in regular school they get sent to these clinics and if they can't do that then there's no options for them some of these kids were like pretty wild. And because I was in clown school and that's where I really got to work with my clown teachings, that's when I knew that this stuff was not just for fun, that this stuff was actually helping not even myself, but it was like I could help some kid be able to like not freak out when he goes into a room and then using like this really playful approach to working with kids. These kids are like violent or they could be dangerous and they never seem to do that to me. I never had a kid ever attack me and stuff. Or maybe once. <laughs> because I played so hard, you know? If a kid was obsessed with SpongeBob or, you know, like he was deep in his imagination, like I would go down there. I'm like, I would become that character for him. 
it was really cool because I saw these kids, they would be in these loops, they would get stuck. And then to get them unstuck or just to be able to, hey, let's, let's, let's find a, like, a new pathway. I would like go down there and then I'd kind of like become some character that would represent something. And then, you know, and then I saw this, this, uh, this movement of like, oh yeah, cool. This kid is like, there's like, he's able to see something else now. But what I didn't realize was that they were also doing that to me. I'd come home and I was just feeling like so changed. I was like in awe because something was happening to me. I think what was happening to me was that I was getting connected to my own innocence and my own childhood and stuff. I think that was the beginning of this work of tending to that is like, oh yeah, it seemed like my job was to like assist this kid with whatever trauma or whatever stuff that they're dealing with, but that it was like a mutual thing, that it wasn't just like, I'm doing this for you. And then I go home and I'm like, going to just, you know, go fuck around or whatever. It's like, wow, like I'm actually getting impacted now so deeply that it was affecting my life. Um, and then I think that's how I really treat a lot of the, that work my artwork or you know whether i'm working with other people that it's a conversation this living conversation the standard i think in our clinical world it's like okay you're broken or whatever and then like i'm gonna fix you and then i have the answers it was kind of like oh no we, we're kind of doing this together because we're all pretty broken you know so to collectively heal is really special yeah I miss some of those. Some of those original kids I worked with, like, man, they left such a deep impact on me. I, I was just, I'm like, if I ever get to see them again, it would be just like, it'd be amazing. You see the, the system of education, because I work in public schools. We're just training these kids just to be able to live in this society. But now I think the social contract is getting broken, you know? When you can't even afford to live in the city, I feel sometimes like, what are we even teaching them? You know, it's like, hey, man, hey, hey, Tommy, have fun out there. Yeah, you might get a job, but you're not you're gonna have to like live with your parents forever. Like what are other options for them? Other than like collective living would be it's like it's one of those things that they just don't know and that these are like options. You know, I think that'd be kind of cool. Going to high schools, you know, and like actually that's where it could be a good cool place to uh, educate about collective housing and uh and showing like, hey, how do you do this kind of stuff? You know, like what are these are some models. And I think it would be useful for some segment of those. Because I see the kids. I'm like, oh, yeah, these are the kids I would be friends with. And, and, I, and these are the kids that I could see probably living in these kind of situations. With collective living, one of the big lessons to learn, I, I think, is like learning to share. With like early childhood education, there's this idea that kids are taught to like share things or that that's something that people should just know how to do when they grow up. But there's actually like not too much education around like how do we share resources especially yeah in a setting such as a shared house sharing is at the heart of every collective home or group that identifies as a collective and i and i think um yeah how that looks can that can look so different for every every home every collective i know at our house eating dinner together is kind of like what keeps us that's our moment of sharing we do that most nights a week i would say that's our check-in time. That's kind of like the glue that of interaction that holds us together. But I know that's not necessarily true for all groups. And I know yeah. at your house, it's something different, right? I live with two musicians. One's a drummer and one's a guitarist. And But we all share a deep, deep love and, um, or even love. Like, I think it's like a way of living uh, for improvisation. Because we don't do too much eating together uh, and cooking and stuff. 
but you need something to bring your people together and whether it's making food or going for walks or there's got to be something that you do together it's like any relationship you need to you need to tend to yeah i think we're kind of unconventional in that sense you know whether we don't do too many group meetings or do a lot of talks although you know it's also important to do those as well too it's not like we're opposed to them it's just i guess it just never this seems to be a thing but then we jam together and we make just sounds and stuff together and i think what happens during those periods is like you collectively go together somewhere and as i think it's a hard experience to explain to people that haven't experienced it but it's beautiful it's like you are traveling together and then you're like connected and nothing exists the individual doesn't exist in that moment you don't exist and you are collectively now in this meditation afterwards like i just want to be a better roommate or i want to be a better housemate and i want to like i don't care that i like i'm going to clean not because like i have to just because i want to because that feeling i get when we get to do that traveling and again i guess it is just another type of traveling right it's you know without uh you know taking anything knowing we're just accessing our you know our impulses and then just being able to connect together i think that's vital you know and i think you know a good meal together and good conversation is like an improvisation as well too there's so much happening around collective housing and living in vancouver and just everywhere in other cities as well but um it's really cool to see the community like there's so many different it, it, i can't even keep track of it there's there's so many things going on in the collective house uh like scene yeah totally there was so many different avenues um travis and i you know used to volunteer at the collective housing society and we used to throw like events and do panel discussions, different kinds of engagement. And the podcast is kind of the latest expression of that. It's making me think about this idea of like, uh, just hearing it was like, imagine if you had like a collective house, you know, network of like, you know, like you Vancouver, but what if you had them in another city or in another country or something? And then you do like exchanges or whatever. Wouldn't that that's, be so cool? Oh like, yeah. Uh, that's, so it's kind of like. There's actually one, uh, uh, I'm, gonna for, I'm forgetting the name. <laughs> you got to have some money to be able to, to access, but, but, but there is um, something Nest. There's that. But yeah, I mean, I think my dream would be like a specific, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how what kind of network that would take on, but so hopefully someone out there, one of our listeners can take that on, you know, and let us know how it goes. Come on and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, if you have a collective living idea or project, uh, yeah, get in touch. <laughs> there's There's been so many avenues on this conversation that I've, yeah, I've been so interested in talking to you for a long time for and I, I think you touched on so many different points that i hope audience members can relate to and engage with and uh yeah i'm so excited to continue on um, this journey with trav and uh for our next few guests that we have lined up we've been hoping to sort of have a an episode every month but we've fallen a little bit behind due to a whole variety of life happenings we're uh, we're making do but excited to uh continue exploring and and hearing different stories as far as interesting stories go raj you're a great storyteller <laughs> well you're part of the story now so maybe we can make an epic you know a side plot <laughs> have you back <laughs> yeah have a check-in yeah where are they now yeah where are they now? <laughs> yeah definitely there's all sorts of yeah it's uh it's oh one insert i wanted to say about like ideas and then like sharing resources the collective housing network it's like an online page where people like just post when they need to rent out a room or are looking to rent a room but another thing we talked about long ago was creating systems of connecting those collectives with one another especially to connect with one another over advocacy but also with sharing resources and like creating care webs of sorts or mutual aid 
I even imagined at one point like a map where you could see like not the exact location of each collective home, but a rough like smattering of collectives in each neighborhood and then some type of way they could connect with one another and then share when events were going on or when they had more food from their garden that they needed. And then tying that into like the community fridge projects and the community food orchards that have been popping up around the city in the past uh, year having this idea of like maybe a community house festival you know where they're like yeah it's like a tour de fridge (laughs) yeah something like that where you know tour de fridge yeah well that's (laughs) like i don't know a friend did one where we biked around to different houses and you just drink beer at all the different houses (laughs) 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 maybe there's other things involved that early (laughs) another resource that you shared was the fantastic spaces or fantasticspace.com because we've been talking about collective housing and I made a virtual tour of my house during COVID so I could, we can have anyone over for our, um, any of our events. So I made a mental institute in my bedroom. So you can kind of tour around the house. It's kind of fun and there's all sorts of surprises in there. For information on the resources that Raj described, expand the details of the episode description. Thank you to our amazing volunteer team including Danya who is our co-producer does all the post-production and we are also recording in her bedroom (laughs) thank you for that Danya (laughs) thank you for moral support delicious baked goods huge shout out to my good friend Travis and also new roomie coming up this February it's awesome coming on these conversations with you and I love hearing about the experiences that often I forget about even though we shared them so yeah it's always a good chat and good journey and shout out to George future new roomie and fun co-host and co-producer and of course thank you to our listeners subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen give us a shout at the coming home podcast at gmail.com let us know your thoughts, projects, feedback. Follow our Instagram, Facebook. Shoot us a DM on our social media platforms and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. 